Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Frances Aparicio. Frances Aparicio is a professor emerita at Northwestern University, where she taught in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and served as the director of Latina and Latino Studies for eight years. She is author of the award-winning Listening to Salsa, Gender, Latin Popular Music, and Puerto Rican Cultures, and more recently, in 2019, of Negotiating Latinidad, Intralatina Latino Lives in Chicago. She is currently working on a book, Manuscript, about Mark Anthony's most canonical songs as sites for critical reflection on identity, colonialism, race, and global solidarities. Bienvenida a este episodio, Frances. Thank you. Uh, Frances, tell me about retirement. What have you found most refreshing about it so far, besides shoveling snow and Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> Well, first, let me thank you for the invitation to talk about my academic work. I think these podcasts truly make our work much more accessible to others outside the academy, and that's always a challenge, right, mm -hmm. for scholars. So right. in terms of retirement, um, after 35 years of teaching, writing, and doing administrative work, I finally have truly embraced uh, being at home. And at first, I was a bit anxious about feeling useless or isolated. I think that's all part of it's all part of our anxieties when decisions to mm -hmm. stop working. But I have realized that retirement has offered me also the gift of time and the freedom to choose what activities I want to engage in. Mm -hmm. um, I get to choose my own work schedule from day to day. I enjoy a more balanced life between professional work and my family and personal life. And this year in particular, you know, we have had the pandemic, so we all have been very limited and constrained in terms of mobility. But I've, I began to learn saxophone. I am learning a new language wow. in Babel. Mm -hmm. I'm trying new recipes in the kitchen, which my husband and my son are so happy about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying Netflix and becoming an avid um, audience. I mean, I'm an avid viewer of Turkish soap operas. <laughs> and uh, just having more time, right, with my husband and my son at home and just relaxing and talking after dinner, things that before we weren't able to do. So I do really appreciate, you know, this flexibility mm -hmm. of choosing my daily activities. And I think more than anything, too, retirement has allowed me to enjoy the present rather than always thinking about anticipating I had a future commitment. I had to get ready for something the next day or for teaching or for class or for a meeting mm -hmm. and just being in the moment and being in the present moment is something that I am finally beginning to enjoy and to and to experience, right? It's not easy. <laughs> right, great. That gives me something but, to look yeah. forward to, you know, in, in, a, yeah. in a few years when, I, when I'm at that stage. Um, And, uh, and just shifting, right? Shifting from doing one thing to another, but continue to be engaged in the things that you, that you love to do. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's nice. And I'm just trying to engage in new experiences. I'm taking Tai Chi. I took a wine class last fall. So 
things, exploring new things that I didn't have the time for before. That's great. Frances, I titled this episode after your most recent book, Negotiating Latinidades, and I use the term Latinidades here to signal the complexity and diversity of a group of people, that is, those who have a Latin American connection. But the term Latinidades has been contested. Why is that? Okay, so this may be a very long answer. <laughs> There's a lot that I have seen and I have witnessed, you know, sort of the different meanings mm -hmm. and the different employments of the term, um, you know, since at least the 1980s for me. Mm -hmm. um, it is definitely, I agree with you, it is a very highly contested term. And um, after decades of struggling for legitimating a sense of a collective identity among us, Um, and I'm here, I'm speaking mostly as a scholar, right? Mm -hmm. Today, many public voices have been willing to dismiss the term altogether. So, mm -hmm. so I want to explain a little bit about that historical change. Because in the 1980s, most scholars like me accepted the term Latino. We name our field after it. You know, if you notice, mm -hmm. many of the programs across the country have, are Latino. Mm -hmm. um, they may be Puerto Rican and Latino or, you know, Chicano and Latino studies. Um, and at that time, I think we all prefer that term because it stood in contrast to the more conservative term Hispanic, which is what the mm -hmm. other option we had. Right. And um, and Hispanic, we sort of rejected it because we felt it was kind of prioritizing the Spanish language and our ancestry from Imperial Spain exclusively. And of course, that was very problematic. Uh, because it was exclusionary in some ways. And so the term Latino for us embraced this wide variety of identities, ethnicities, racial groups, communities, right, within the hemispheric framework of the Americas. Mm -hmm. And Latino was our democratic option then. It, despite it, you know, it also came from French Empire, imperial origins, but the term was associated with a wider, more democratic inclusion of black and indigenous identities and communities. And while each of these umbrella terms that designate communal belongings are not, is not perfect, we were determined to continue theorizing and debating the pros and cons, right, mm -hmm. of this contested term. Now, so for years, the term was also being deployed for marketing purposes, right, by the uh, literary industry and the printing the publishers in New York, mm -hmm. and it allowed us to sell more books. Um, literary publishers were creating a niche in the industry, and they were com conflating um, the writings of Latin American authors like Borges, Neruda, and Garcia Marquez with the Chicana fiction of Sandra Cisneros or the New Yorican poetry of Pedro Pietri, right? So I still remember that very clearly, particularly late 80s, early 90s, where there was like a lot of anxiety over you know, that kind of hemispheric um, use of the term, but this was basically coming from the marketing, right? Mm -hmm. um, literary, literary industry. So at that suspicion, however, you know, was something that we all held and it continued for decades. This ambivalence was always there, right? Many scholars included the term in the titles of their books, but then wrote against how it was a homogenizing term mm -hmm. and the ways in which they felt it had been imposed by editors, agents, and publishers. So we also kind of capitalized on it by, you know, using it for, to market our own books. Right. Um, but there was always still that, you know, kind of suspicion and, and sort of, um, yeah, kind of suspicion about it. Um, so what I, I think it's interesting is that nowadays, too, we need to distinguish between kind of the more popular use of the term, particularly, yeah, the term Latinidad itself, mm -hmm. um, and the way in which scholars have deployed it and developed it. 
because um, many people in, in outside of academia think about it as a term that means attributes, right, shared by Latinx people. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are, how are we all similar? And we run the risk, I think, of essentializing um, our community, which is so heterogeneous, right? right? So many scholars then, in terms of thinking about that, um, we prefer to define it as a shared sense of identity that we experience as colonial subjects. So what does bring us together is not attributes of who we are or how we are, but it's more the, the, the colonial experience and how that colonial experience has structured our lives. So the distinction, and I think this is important, the distinction between using the term in reference to a subject, right, to say how, who's Latino and who's not, mm-hmm. instead of referring to an experience, and that is, I think, where Latinidad then comes in is most crucial, right? So by highlighting the shared conditions of colonialism and racialization and stigmatization in the United States, then the term Latinidad can be used as a decolonial concept that denounces this racialization. And I think many people reject the term because they don't acknowledge or they're not familiar with the ways in which, you know, we are using it in in decolonial ways. So um, there's also a new, um, a more recent uh, deployment of the term too, which is many Latinos who are now using the term more as a racial label rather than an ethnic label. Mm-hmm. So a way of speaking out also against the subordination of, of their families and their communities. And there's a recent book by Neil, book by Nilda Flores, who's at Arizona State University in Sociology. Uh, it's called Citizens But Not Americans. And she interviews about a hundred young Latinos in here in the Midwest and in Chicago who, um, who sort of um, prefer uh, thinking about Latino more as a racial label. Uh, And this is because they have been racialized. So again, I think that defining the term more as attribute diminishes this understanding, right, of the acts of resistance Mm -hmm. that have informed the rich history of the term. And rethinking Latinidad as a critical concept allows us then to feel ownership over the term and to deploy it in liberating and, and decolonial ways. So I think if we approach, and I'm almost done, but if we approach <laughs> that mm-hmm. as a side of contestation, if we think about it as a signifier and a term that is constantly shifting and expanding, right, mm-hmm. um, then we can think about how cultural workers, social activists, and individual voices, right, can rewrite and rethink the term. And I think in this way, then we can embrace all the meaningful critiques that have been more recently articulated by Afro-Latinx, Indigenous, and LGBTQ communities, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, many of them are now dismissing the term. Uh, They discredit the um, Latinidad discredits. To them, Latinidad does not include their identities as black Latinos Mm. or their gender sexual identities. Uh, Janelle Martinez, for example, has written that Latinidad is anti-black and it deserves a very narrow audience. And in fact, they have equated Latinidad with white supremacy. Mm. Um, and I think in, in, this, in this way, there is something to be said about how in the 90s and 80s and 90s, Latinx studies has been pretty much populated by white Latinx academ- academics, right? Mm-hmm. So in that way, the term was reflecting that racial demographic. Um, but by now, by 2020, I think, in fact, Latino studies as a, as a field is being reinvigorated, right, by a community of brilliant and well-established Black Latinx scholars who are theorizing, rejecting, and rewriting these terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can mention a, a 
good number of names. Um, but I think what I'm going to do is is sort of like finish this talking a little bit more too about how um, the fact that because so many people have rejected the term Latinidad, um, I also want to think that it is also important because many of the intra-Latino subjects that I interviewed for my book actually embrace the term Latino or Latina or Latinx because it, embod- it embodies the multi- their multiple nationalities and ethnicities, right? So for every subject who's, who rejects Latinidad, there's also another subject who says, but I am a Latino, right? Mm-hmm. And I embrace that term. Um, and finally, just a little note on the context in terms of gender. So the Latinx thing is like the latest debate on mm-hmm. the term itself. Um, and we know it comes from, you know, uh, the non-traditional gender communities, LGBTQ, um, gender non-binary communities that are really trying to resist the the way in which the term Latino and Latina still reproduces these binaries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that X um, has been interesting because there's been a lot of voices who have spoken against the Latinx, um, and some of them have used the the argument that uh, the Spanish grammar doesn't allow for the X, um, which I find extremely problematic because language is always changing, right? Mm-hmm. So, right, right. And always, uh, you know, uh, shifting uh, based on its use. And then the other, I think the other argument that is being used against this is that only 3% of the Latino population actually knows about the term or uses it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are seeing it as a term that is coming, in fact, from academics and media, um, but that's how all terms begin, too, in many ways. We start using these terms, and eventually they become much more accepted and embraced and, and used by people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, again, what I wanted to, to focus on and to highlight is the um, the way in which the term itself is it's an important term to to think about, but as a, as a site in which a lot of these debates are being enacted, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, because the, the word itself is just a word, it's just a signifier, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think we need to do is kind of embrace it as a word that we own and that we control its meanings and that we are the ones who are, should be able to decide, right? how to use it, and what does it mean for different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Right, and then what I see often, and I, and I feel like this is something that, that we um, sort of are, are asked to do, right, when we, when we come into a room and we're, we're using a term, uh, it, it's to describe how we're going to be using it, right, in this context, or, right. or what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we're using the word Latinidad is to mean X, Y, and Z. Uh, to include yeah. X, Y, and Z, we acknowledge, you know, that um, it could be uh, used and, you know, and and um, not include certain groups or, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, yeah. But we have, you know, in in, in this um, identity um, words or you know, that are that mm-hmm. are meant to um, a group. Uh, a people or a, a people that shares <laughs> some of the right, like the umbrella term. Yes, yeah, they're mm-hmm. always complicated. They're always going to be complicated, mm-hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> but yeah. I think it's productive, like you said, to come and to say, "Well, this is how I'm using this term," um, and I acknowledge, you know, some of its mm-hmm. limitations or the the ongoing um, changes, right? That that are happening, mm-hmm. uh, just like you mentioned, the yeah. term Latinx for sure. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, for me, it's just been fascinating to think about the critiques because, I mean, it's a moment for a new generation to come and decide what they want to do with the term, right? Mm -hmm. And if they feel the term doesn't do what it's supposed to do for them, they don't identify with it, then it's fine, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But then there's also other voices, right, that are also saying, no, this is who we are now. We are Latinos because we are second generation, born in the U.S., you know? Uh, or intra-Latinos who actually feel that the term Latino doesn't erase either one of their nationalities, right, mm. uh, their ethnicities. So I think in, in those ways it is, you know, um, a term that has different meanings for different people. Yeah. yeah, and that leads into my next question, which is, you know, talking about the many, many generations, right, of U.S. Latinos um, and that they come from different groups, uh, they intermarry, uh, and then it might be difficult, right, to claim one heritage or one identity. Um, so you have done research on Mexican identities to groups that are already complex, right? Uh, in general, mm-hmm. uh, we can say that Puerto Ricans uh, have a strong Afro-descendant history that is reflected not only in race, but also on uh, culture and traditions. While Mexicans, mm-hmm. a larger country, with so many different and distinct regions, and in general, a stronger indigenous connection makes this group unique in a different way. And of course, uh, we have many other groups, right? We have Mexi Guatemalans, uh, Cuban and Puerto Ricans, and, mm-hmm. and so many other you know, combinations or, or <laughs> groups. Tell me about some of the studies you have done as it relates to intra-Latina and Latino lives in the Midwest. Okay, so in my book, I present my analysis of 20 interviews that I completed with young intra-Latino adults who had been born or grown up in Chicago. And again, I think I um, I had to deal at the beginning of the book with the whole issue of geography and regions in the United States, right? Uh, because Chicago and the Midwest have been sort of marked as the exceptional spaces of Latinidad, right? Mm. Uh, Because of the longer history of Mexican and Puerto Rican communities interacting socially in the workplace, in schools, and living next door to each other. Um, But I think what is fascinating is that I started looking into the ways in which I found like inter-Latino marriages and families um, across the country, and I highlight two particular cases that Mendez family in Southern California, Silvia Mendez and her parents actually sued the school districts for segregation in the 40s. And that was kind of a precedent to the Brown versus Board, right? Mm. The legal case that created supposedly integrated schools in the country. And Silvia Mendez, her mother, Felicitas Mendez, was Puerto Rican and her father was Mexican. And so it's interesting, again, because the scholarship only talks about her in regards to the schooling, right, Mm. Uh, racial issue, but it has been sort of erased that actually it was a Mexican family, right, Mm. not just a Mexican-American family in Southern California, and this was in the 40s. Um, And I also highlight the family of Ana Celia Centella, who's Mm -hmm. a Puerto Rican, Mexican sociolinguist who has retired already, But she also sent to me some information about how her parents met in the 1920s in New York. And there was like a Mexican cultural center in New York that her father belonged to, right? Mm -hmm. So these are like early stories of families that have been inter-Latino families um, in places outside of the Midwest. And I think it is important I kind of make an exhortation and 
to my readers to think about ways in which we can continue to develop, right, mm-hmm. this knowledge about these these inter-Latino families. Um, the other aspect related to region has to do also with the, you know, which are the most prominent and dominant national and ethnic communities in this area. So, for example, clearly in Chicago, Mexican families, but in California, you have Mexican Salvadoran and Mexican Guatemalan. In New York, we have the Dominican Rican, Cuban Rican, Colombian Rican families. So every region also has kind of its own particular profile mm-hmm. um, based on who are the groups that have settled there. And I think that kind of demographic diversification um, that was actually uh, pre, pre, I mean, how can you say this, that it was actually predicted mm-hmm. in the Midwest. So these 20 interviews that I did reveal the ways in which young intralatino subjects negotiate these multiple national and ethnic communities, but mostly with, within their nuclear and extended families. Um, I asked them about uh, 20 different questions to each of them, and the questions were the same, but then each story was a totally different one, right? So mm-hmm. it was fascinating to think about the sort of um, the ways in which they have a difficult time finding a space of fully belonging within the spaces of family. Mm-hmm. Uh, they grapple with the ways in which one of their ethnicities is usually more visible and dominant in the public eye, while their other half was invisible and unacknowledged. And so thinking about their own experiences, I proposed the concept of horizontal hierarchies to allow us to think about how to analyze these power differentials, right, and these power asymmetries between different national and ethnic communities within Latino USA. Um, And the other thing that was also very interesting in the book and that came out of the narratives uh, of the interviews is how they also engage in processes of transculturation. So each of their ethnic communities or identities is transformed and changed by the others, right? Because they live in in the same intimate space of the household and the family. And so there were all kinds of stories related to religion, to issues of language, uh, skin color and race. I interviewed about, there were about three or four um, Afro-Puerto Rican and Mexican uh, intralatinos who spoke about how they felt really excluded right from the Mexican community because they were dark skinned, gender ideologies too, and also the ways that they perform their own national and ethnic identity in public spaces. So there was a, uh, an, a kind of a performativity, too, in terms of how we perform ourselves, right, in social space. Mm-hmm. So how they make those choices. So they also, and then at the end, I just kind of uh, talk about how they identify with terms like Latino or American, right, and how they identify or disidentify with their nationality, uh, and ethnicities. So that was, this is kind of just like a, just a general overview of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what did you find in terms of how, um, you know, the, the people that you interviewed um, negotiated that, you know, the different mm-hmm. cultures and perhaps races uh, within the mm-hmm. family and the expectations, right? I can just imagine, um, a certain expectation to, um, loyalty to a nationality, um, versus another one. And on top of all of that, right, growing up in the U.S. and and, and also being, you know, part of the mainstream American culture. Um, what, what what were your findings on that? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's fascinating because as academics, you know, we 
have sort of promoted post-nationalist narratives, right, for Mm -hmm. a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we live in a very globalized world, and not everybody always thinks about national identity as a a central pillar to their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. But what I found in these narratives uh, from the interviews is that, you know, many of these inter-Latino families were extremely, extremely nationalist, right, Mm -hmm. in the ways that they erected boundaries between uh, both national families, you know, under the same household or the, how they how they insisted on differentiating on differentiating. So there was there were there were a number of, of Latin intra Latinx um young people who felt, you know, who were literally overtly excluded, right, from family functions mm-hmm. and things like that because the grandmother or the, the grandmothers were important characters in the life. Mm-hmm. Las abuelas, las abuelas. They, las abuelas were <laughs> like, oh, mija, no, you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, what is it? I don't know. You're Guatemalan, you're not Mexican like us, so, you know, you, you won't understand this or mm-hmm. they would make mm-hmm. these kind of microaggression comments or mm-hmm. Anyway, these kinds of forms of exclusion, you know, in social spaces that actually made them feel very uncomfortable, right? And very excluded and, mm-hmm. and not, 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 um, not, not a sense of belonging, uh, because of who they were. So there were, um, these very, you know, difficult and very painful moments for many of these, of these, uh, intralatinos. I remember a Mexican Guatemalan woman who told me that she had, a her, she had to go and eat with her Guatemalan grandmother and then she would eat with her Mexican grandmother, but she would tell both of, you know, each of them how good their food was and that that was her favorite food because otherwise, you know, they would get upset. (laughs) (laughs) So that the grandmothers would even be competing, right, for the Mm -hmm. love and the attention of the grandchild who Mm -hmm. was mixed. Um, So those kinds of, of, I think, tensions and expectations, right, were there that you had to belong to one or the other, mm-hmm. even though they were, you know, growing up in a very mixed family. Um, the other thing that was really interesting, too, was the there was a tendency to dismiss, delete, and undermine the, the subordinate or the secondary identity within the family or the neighborhood, right? So that also kind of exemplified for me these horizontal hierarchies, right, that are constructed within families and social spaces. So um, many of these family members erased their multiplicity, right, of, of mm. these Latinos, uh, because they were like, well, Guatemalans are not as important in Chicago as Mexicans mm. are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, these the way in which these hierarchies are constructed in everyday life had to do too with how they approached and how they define, you know, who was the more important community. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a young man who was Mexican who grew up in a very Mexican neighborhood and who got lost once when he was a little boy. And um, and a, a, a lady found him and, and told him, oh, you must be you must be the son of that Puerto Rican father because we know he's not, you know, he's not Mexican because of the way he looks, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. this kind of ways in which people get framed and get defined, you know, also biology, phenotype, all of those things also very much uh, came into play. So, um, and this young man actually later talked about how he ended up performing his Puerto Ricanness by speaking very um, uh, very um, accented Puerto Rican Spanish when he was in high school, you know, and he kind of got targeted that way. Uh, so again, you know, these ways in which people make decisions about how to perform the uh, the subordinated uh, identity, right, within this 
the neighborhood or the school or so on. So these were, you know, all really interesting uh, examples of the way they negotiate these things. Um, and some others spoke about, I can't choose one or the other because I'm both. Mm-hmm. And so there was that kind of resistance, right, to to have to choose one or the other. I had a, I interviewed a Cuban Bolivian woman whose father is Bolivian, the mother was Cuban, and she said, each of my cultures are so different. It's like I can't choose one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. I have to be both, and I cannot make those kinds of of decisions. Um, but these are also lifelong processes, right, that change with age, location, and relationships, and they're always there informing the sense of identity and belonging. And in terms of of fitting into mainstream U.S. American culture as young millennials, um, these intra-Latinos, I think they feel very comfortable in urban settings, in diverse communities. Uh, One of the women that I interviewed told me that she associated being hybrid with, I quote, being modern and urban. Uh, And she, because she distinguished herself from her own parents who, you know, are first-generation immigrants. Mm -hmm. And they tended to reproduce their own ethnic traditions, right, in very segmented ways uh, here. So she talked about how, you know, um, her parents would go and eat Mexican, but she would go and try all different kinds of foods with her friends and so on. So, And she really attributed her, her kind of flexibility and her acceptance, her much it was easier for her to accept all kinds of diverse cultures than it was for her parents. And I thought that that was that kind of potential for, you know, uh, um, uh, a larger sense of tolerance of other cultures mm-hmm. and a sense of, cohabit- you know, solidarity and alliances that can be created that these hybrid Latin- intra-Latinos, you know, felt very open and very easy uh, to do that rather than thinking about their own national identity. So, um, and in terms of, of, I'm thinking also the last chapter of the book talks about the, the, how they associate with the term American or mm-hmm. with the term Latino. Um, and some of them did feel comfortable with the term American, but they, de- so, they did so not because uh, they felt assimilated, that they, you know, erased who they were, mm-hmm. but because they did not feel a sense of full belonging in either one of their parents' national communities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they kind of, and I think a second generation Latinos too, who have been born in the U.S., to them that was really important to to reclaim. Uh, but also they wanted to highlight the Americas also, the more hemispheric sense of the American in terms of the Americas and their own multiplicity, so some of them talked about how, oh, my father, you know, was born in Mexico, but then he migrated to California and then he came to Chicago and, you know, and he doesn't belong to any particular place. And I want to honor that, you know, I want to honor that kind of like multiplicity in terms of space and region and uh, residency. So I think that that was something that they really highlighted and felt very proud about. Um, and then there were other intra-Latinx, too, who felt very much at home with the term Latino, right? Precisely because the term does not erase our multiplicity, but embraces it. So there was there was a, a very rich variety, again, of, you know, kind of positionings, how they position themselves vis-a-vis the term American and Latino and, and their own nationalities as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis. Were you so? Some of the stories that you just mentioned briefly uh, sound like uh, some of them might be go deeper into trauma, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's uh, maybe family 
whether it was intentional or not, but a type of bullying within the family, right? Because of yeah. mm-hmm. um, maybe yeah. what what um, culture they prefer, or they're more knowledgeable knowledgeable about, or they um, um, embody you know, more visibly, uh, perhaps, or even, Mm -hmm. you know, the the use of the language, Spanish, Mm -hmm. or, um, uh, and not just speaking Spanish, but what kind of Spanish, right? Is it Mexican Spanish? Mm -hmm. Is it Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. Spanish or, or, or other? Um, Mm -hmm. And so can can you, do you have um, any comments on, on sort of that finding? And were you ready to hear some of this, uh, you know, um, stories that might be more difficult to hear in terms of, especially like I think of my own daughters, right? Growing up also Mm -hmm. bicultural and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe you have also, you know, you're raising a child that might have uh, more than one culture or more than one language Mm -hmm. and how, how do we do, you know, I I just think of of myself as a parent, like how do we um, Mm -hmm. nurture that, you know, nurture Mm -hmm. being bicultural and bilingual in good and positive ways and not um, maybe reproduce some of this trauma um, yeah. expectations of belonging mm-hmm. to one culture or another or one language or another. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no, that's, um, I have to say that I was not ready for a lot of the the stories that I, that they shared with me in terms of trauma and a sense of pain and the, mm-hmm. all the difficulties and the struggles that so many of these families you know, have have lived through. Um, and then, of course, listening to it from the point of view of the child, right? Because mm-hmm. these are the, these are were young college students that I interviewed in the early 2000s. So um, I think the sense of pain, too, was there. And and there were a couple of, of interviews where, I mean, they were there just literally crying. Mm-hmm. And I cried with them because I was there listening to this pain. Um, and I think a lot of that, too, had to do with uh, the way they related to their parents. Uh, so let me tell, first talk a little bit about, yeah, affect and the pain, right? Because that was something that um, that was very much part of these national negotiations. And that's where I made the connection between sort of the intimacy of family life and the intimate relationships to their parents and their siblings, and at the same time, how they describe and define these national identities, right? Because it, it was all... Uh, filter through these painful experiences. So um, some of them disavowed and they distanced themselves from the national identity embodied by a parent who had caused pain in their lives. Mm. One young man um, whose Guatemalan father had engaged in infidelity, right, and the parents ended up getting divorced, he denounced Guatemalan males as womenizers mm. and became much more bonded with his Nicaraguan and Puerto Rican identity through his mother, right? So so he actually took a stand and said, I don't want to be like my father. I don't want to be. So he kind of disidentified from that. Um, there was another young woman who was hard, very traumatized by her Colombian mother's plastic surgery. The, she was in college, and when she came home, her mother had shifted from size 14 to size 7. I don't know. Something very, very, it was a very big trauma in her life that her mother never told her about mm-hmm. this surgery until uh, she found out walking in at home, you know, walking into her home uh, for Thanksgiving or Christmas holiday. And um, and she, as part of that distancing, she was also distanced herself very much from her maternal Colombian relatives, right? So she embraced her stepfather's Mexican culture and identity. She talked to me about her 
participation in Mexican culture here in Chicago and in social spaces um, with so much joy. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, the way she talked about her mother and her relationship with her mother was very, very, very sad and full of full of anger, too, and resentment. Um, there was also a young man, the young Afro-Puerto Rican and Mexican man who shared with me how growing up, he grew up in a predominantly Mexican neighborhood with his mother and his mother's parents, but he always felt like an outsider looking in, right, because of his dark skin color. So he looked too Puerto Rican to be Mexican, and he did not have the opportunity to pass as Mexican either, right? Other Mexicans who were not dark skinned were able to pass as Mexican when they could. And passing is also, I found, mm-hmm. a very interesting performance, too, of identity, right? Mm-hmm. That many of these intralatinx engaged growing up in between these two national communities. So these, all these affective processes informed by the pain of non-belonging, outright rejections, um, and these kinds of disavowals from their parents or their national uh, communities, right, also frame these definitions as I said, of these national identities and ethnic practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, if we think about it through intimacy, I think it becomes an interesting frame from which we can also understand, you know, also the I think the very strong power that nationalism and national identity still have in our family lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, again, I think the 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 role of, of the role of language, I think, was different for me. Um, I think, in terms of lo- looking at how Spanish played a role in in the uh, lives of these intra Latinx, I actually devoted a whole chapter to Spanish. Mm-hmm. It's titled "Negotiating Spanish Linguistic Boundaries and Transculturation." Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly, as second generation Latinx, uh, they all shared that sense of grappling with their Spanish skills and competence and competencies, right, Mm -hmm. in order to achieve some sort of acceptance, right, within their families and communities. Um, And I think, I mean, you work with teaching Spanish as Mm -hmm. a heritage language, and I'm sure, you know, these kind of linguistic anxieties are not exceptional. Um, You know, we have worked with Latino students who feel like their Spanish is never good enough, that they feel like they're imposters, that Mm -hmm. they have a last name Rodriguez or Santiago, but they can't pronounce Spanish correctly. So Mm -hmm. all these you know, all that trauma, too, of, of language is also very much part of, of the struggles that they felt in, in, in belonging. Um, but they also uh, acknowledged that their Spanish was not always perfect, that they there were two young women who worked very hard at perfecting their Spanish and studying it formally very well so that they could actually um, sort of feel comfortable with the rest of their families. Um, but there were also in- interesting family dynamics. One of them uh, was Mexican-Peruvian, but she, her family was a Chicano family from California who spoke code switching and only English, and she would go visit them, and she always said, well, you know, there's, there, they do code switching, code switching, and that's really not com-. So she totally also policed their Spanish, right? <laughs> um, and again, I think these are all like processes of negotiating a sense of power mm-hmm. and right over uh, around your family um, but I also discovered in these in the chapter on on the comments about Spanish that there were also beautiful instances of linguistic transculturation right so for example a Mexi Guatemalan woman who spoke Spanish and she said I speak Spanish with a Guatemalan vocabulary that mm-hmm. I learned from my grandparents 
Uh, but I also speak Spanish with a Mexican accent that I learned from her, mm -hmm. my father. So, so she, and she said she couldn't separate those. She said, my two identities are, you know, articulated through Spanish, mm -hmm. and I cannot separate the Guatemalan vocabulary from the Mexican accent, right? Um, me suena fascinante those, eso. Me, me suena yeah. completamente fascinante. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, again, you know, like these are the kinds of things that are more difficult to identify uh, when you're doing, you know, traditional methodologies doing mm -hmm. linguistics. Because it's very difficult, mm -hmm. you know, to unless you you do these interviews and you really, you know, get into details of this level, then you will not be, be able to understand, you know, why uh, intralatinos, you know, speak Spanish and do they follow the mother's Spanish or the father's Spanish and all of that. So I think not everybody presented these kinds of linguistic transculturations, but I think it speaks to, you know, the complexity of what's oh, yeah. happening in these family spaces. Um, and I think in general, I mean, they also talk about how Spanish was an asset. Um, I, there was a Mexican-Colombian young man who, who had grappled and, and really suffered through, you know, the way he was racialized as a Mexicano. And so he said, no, I decided to speak my mother's Colombian Spanish because it would make me a more um, respectable Latino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you know, it, it, you know and, and this, I think, goes back to sort of our initial discussion about Latinidades and the, all those terms, mm -hmm. right, that, <clears throat> that that are so complex themselves, like being an individual, our identities, um, especially as U.S. Mm -hmm. Latinos, are complex. And it, it, it's not just race, it's not, not just nationalities, it's mm -hmm. language, it's uh, gender, you know, and... and um, even as academics, right, and, 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 and like you mentioned, some of those terms that have um, been created in academia and then become part of mm -hmm. the maybe the, the um, mainstream narrative. I mean, I hear the term Latinx now being used as a, a commercial, you know, term. Uh, so, you yeah. know, the media mm -hmm. is quick yeah. to capitalize on, on those types of, of terms. But um, any term, I think, is a process. Um, that's what I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been in conversations about the term BIPOC. Right. Uh, and mm -hmm. and how some communities um, have a problem with it or they don't understand it mm -hmm. or <laughs> and, and, and it's uh, sometimes I just smile. Right. Because I, I don't think we will ever have a term that is all encompassing that that um, exactly. that mm -hmm. is going to, you know, um, point to every single uh, feature of one's identity, and mm -hmm. that's okay. I think that's what yeah. the beauty mm -hmm. is, right? It, do we want mm -hmm. a term that's going to describe every single piece that makes you you? Um, and, yeah. and and so I think these conversations are important, but also um, I feel like we need also to be compassionate. You know, um, uh, some some mm -hmm. I. Um, whether, you know, we like, I, I like to use the, the, it's not pronounceable, right? But uh, when I write Latino, I, I, I write it mm -hmm. with the at sign, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. and I just like how it looks. Yeah, whether you use that. An alternative, right? right that people mm -hmm. have proposed. Yeah. Or whether you mm -hmm. use the term Latinx. Uh, to me, the most important thing is I'm going to address the person how they want to address themselves, right? If they say, mm -hmm. I am Latino, then that's what I will 
you know, mm-hmm. say, use to to talk yeah. about them. Um, yeah. If they use the term Latina or Latinx, then I need to respect that, right? That's how they identify or want to be identified. So then I'll go with that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it, I, I I love this conversation <laughs> about, you know, how complex <laughs> no, our identities yeah. are and, and those of our uh, children, right? Um Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, and I think, you know, we, we need more work on mixed race Latinos, too. That is, um, I use a lot of the mixed race, critical mixed race studies um, to inform my own, you know, framework uh, for analyzing these interviews, because there isn't, any, there isn't much on, you know, much research. There's some research on Mexicans in Chicago, um, Mexi Salvadorans in L.A., mm-hmm. and uh, one article that came out you know, right before I was going to send the, the manuscript for, for production on um, Dominicans in New York. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it, you know. So, and, and this is a population, not only the mixed race, I think Julie Dowling in sociology and uh, in, in Urbana has done some work with, with mixed race Latinos. But in general, there's very little attention has been paid to, you know, Latinos who are white, also mm-hmm. uh, Latinos who are Arab, you know, right. uh, other other kinds of of cultural bicultural experiences. You know, mm-hmm. We are such a large community, and we're so heterogeneous, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so mm-hmm. that's definitely something to to think about for future research agenda. <laughs> yes, Francis, is there anything else you would like to say about your work or your your new book coming up uh, on uh, Mark Anthony's music? Oh, I still have to finish. <laughs> I'm still no. I'm excited about that work. Um, it's been kind of slow, but I'm. I still have two more chapters to write, so it's going to be a five chapter book. Uh, but no, it's that's been that's kind of. I'm doing that for myself mm-hmm. and for the joy and pleasure of working on his music because I think his work, the the importance of his work for Latino audiences and in general, has been so uh, unacknowledged, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's seen as a pop figure and he's seen as a global icon and that's great, but it's all, everything that I've seen, there's been no academic analysis of the importance of his work, right? So mm-hmm. I think in that way, I'm going back to Puerto Rican studies, <laughs> in mm-hmm. a way, find a framework around Puerto Rican identity and culture, and I'm looking at, you know, New York as an important site for his music, Uh, and for his development, um, but also focusing on every chapter is dedicated to a a different song. Does he know, does Mark Anthony know that you're doing this research on him? You know what? I have tried to schedule an interview with him Mm -hmm. for two years now and nothing. Oh, my goodness. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because I have already written three chapters Mm -hmm. and he has not been part of it. And, and there's some colleagues of mine that are telling me, you don't need him for this. This is your book about his song, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's your... I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I don't, right. yeah, I don't want to write a book about him. I don't want to write a book about his life or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, That's all right. out there. Mm-hmm. There's tons of, you know, media and entertainment journalists who have, you know, said things about him and how following him. So, I'm not as interested in that as I am about the impact that these songs have had as they have circulated. Mm-hmm. Some of the history of the songs themselves and the lyrics, but also the sounds and the rhythms and, you know, kind of what 
each song does to to the to the listeners. Should I continue pushing to see if I could get an interview with him? It would be great. <laughs> but no, yeah. he it's the staff does a great job gatekeeping <laughs> as they should right they with do. such a with such a name <laughs> yes. I know yes. I know that's exactly that's true but anyway so but no I'm still working on that book I give myself maybe two at least two more years to mm-hmm. see if I can finish and have a good book manuscript to present so great. yeah great well Francis uh, gracias muchas gracias por esta conversación Oh, thank you for the opportunity to share my work with you and with your listeners, right? So I'm I'm looking forward to having you circulated so um so that others can also engage in this kind of work and we need more research, right? We need more scholarship on intralatinos in terms of ethnographies, oral mm-hmm. history, right. you know, demographics too are important. I just the numbers are there. I'm not a sociologist or a you know, a demo- demographer. So for me, I was less interested in knowing how many how many intralatinos are there, but thinking more about how it's a growing like, a growing population among us, right? And it, they need to be acknowledged publicly, and also the impact it can have on policy and institutions. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. yeah. Bueno. Anyway, so thank you, Elena, for the opportunity. Thank you. Um, a todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Okay.